Amorphous Apologetics, a review of Social Justice Goes to Church, The New Left in Modern American Evangelicalism by John Harris. 194 paperback pages, published in 2020 by Ambassador International. In his podcast, Conversations That Matter, host John Harris routinely critiques, at length and in no uncertain terms, his fellow evangelical Christians. He is systematic, well-spoken, and scathing as he lists the theological infidelities of evangelical leaders. Harris received his MA in History from Liberty University, and that training comes through in his lengthy and well-researched presentations. Typically, Harris presents a PowerPoint that compares, contrasts, and deconstructs the latest tweets or sermons from prominent evangelical leaders. Those uninitiated to the world of evangelical Christianity will see exit polls and assume the faithful are immune to the kinds of political fissures that have rocked the U.S. over the past two years. But this would be to miss a massively important current of our national history— After George Floyd, those conservative evangelicals who articulated a quote-unquote biblical call to racial justice were accused by fundamentalists like Harris of quote-unquote preaching another gospel, one that adds worldly dimensions to a purely spiritual message. In his freshman historical outing, Social Justice Goes to Church, the New Left in Modern American Evangelicalism, Harris attempts to show the historical origins of the worldly social justice gospel and the undercurrents of its recent iterations. The culprit of disunity among evangelicals in this account is a small cadre of leaders who began a quest as youth in the 1960s to integrate ideas from the so-called New Left into evangelical expressions of faith. After a relatively brief moment of popularity in the 1970s, Harris argues, the leaders of this group fell from public favor. They have since been using furtive tactics to smuggle their political agenda into both the pulpit and what is derisively sometimes referred to as the evangelical industrial complex. In recent years, Harris suggests, these aging progressives have finally found success in the mainstream of evangelicalism. Any serious student of evangelical history will welcome with enthusiasm a book with so tantalizing a thesis, especially given the number of conservative evangelical leaders who have developed a voyeuristic interest in so-called wokeness since George Floyd's death. It is both a great disappointment and source of suspicion, then, to find that Harris fails to offer meaningful exposition of several key concepts that matter in his story most notably the very new left of the book's title. The book is structured to focus on the influence of key leaders, opening with biographies of six evangelical quote-unquote young progressives who were the early proponents of new left ideas in evangelical Christianity. Each story shares fairly broad brushstrokes. A youth disaffected by the sanitary civil religion of the 1950s joins a protest movement, becomes disaffected with the godless materialistic foundation of Marxism, and returns to the faith of their youth enlightened. As Harris tells it, the insights that young progressives gleaned from the new left are synonymous with well-born liberal platforms on poverty, civil rights, 
sexual liberation, and racial equality, which figures prominently in the book. The young progressive evangelicals defended these platforms on the grounds of biblical authority, finding justification in Yahweh's covenant injunctions with Israel. In the prophetic books of Amos and Jeremiah, the young progressives found stories they felt echoed the various crises of the Vietnam and civil rights era in the U.S. Israel was condemned for waging war as it ignored its own poor and failed to welcome the immigrant. These same themes the progressive evangelicals believed were echoed in Jesus' care for the poor and his proclamation of a present kingdom of heaven. The politically subversive messages of the New Left made inroads to mainstream evangelicalism as the young progressives syncretized the language of systemic and institutional issues with a traditional theological vocabulary of sin and redemption. This new language received its first stamp of institutional approval when in 1973 the young progressives penned the Chicago Declaration. Harris's account of this statement's origins is perhaps the only place in this text where we receive any indication of what these so-called new left ideas meant for the church. Young progressive Ron Sider stated that the Chicago Declaration summarized the core theological conviction of young evangelicals, which was that, quote, evangelism and social concern are inseparable and that individual and structural sin are equally abhorrent to Yahweh, end quote. Given his focus in the leadership of this movement, Harris spends ample time exploring the self-perception of these personalities. Quote, the young progressives were not simply taking over American evangelicalism from the outside, writes Harris. Quote, they were reviving what they believed was a corrupted religion as insiders who owed much of their personality to American evangelicalism itself, end quote. In a flourish that is as telling of the author as it is of the characters he is analyzing, Harris draws a line of historical continuity between progressive evangelicals and the 19th century revivalists who catalyzed the abolitionist movement in New England. The young progressives did explicitly align themselves with and view themselves as the inheritors of the abolitionist cause. Harris comments that this inheritance was a theologically problematic, quote, social gospel centered more around man's ability to transform society that took precedence over Christ's ability to transform man, end quote. Harris spends much of the book building comparisons between 19th century revivalists, fundamentalists, and the young progressives. Still, he ultimately concludes it is because of the influence of the new left that today, quote, the most important question for Christians themselves is if they will be able to hold on to their orthodoxy while combining their faith tradition with ideas stemming from neo-Marxist ideology, end quote. I can safely say that Harris is a more reliable biographer than, say, Plutarch. To the extent any of us is able to present a fact qua fact, it is often done here dispassionately, if not quite fairly. The collection of biographies on display gives a reasonably good feel for the cultural zeitgeist among those conservative evangelicals who left the confines of their tradition during the 1960s, if only for a season. 
Moreover, one could potentially read signs of good faith in Harris's suggestion that most progressive evangelicals genuinely view themselves in continuity with the Protestant tradition. Harris is at his strongest when he draws comparisons between progressives and other Christians. For example, he astutely points out that evangelicals have often levied accusations of excessive individualism against their more conservative counterparts. Harris follows in the footsteps of social critics like Robert Bella by noting that the entire project of progressive evangelicals ironically, quote, presupposed a form of individualism, end quote. Like their counterparts in secular student movements, quote, Instead of working within the social framework of communities into which they were born, reform advocates attempted to destroy present social bonds and obligations while erecting new ones, end quote. This is perhaps overstated, but the critique of liberalism's internal contradictions stands on firm intellectual foundations. One only wishes that these insights were more drawn out, especially since they could be used to levy some actual indictments against the specific thoughts and influence of the New Left. Sadly, neither the lives or thoughts of the New Left receive explanation here, and in fact are hardly mentioned at all. Thinkers like Herbert Mercuse and C. Wright Mills are mentioned, but only in passing, and at times in the same breath as thinkers like Ludwig Wittgenstein, Charles Taylor, and others who have no imaginable relation to the New Left. The arbitrary nature of most religious beliefs makes it hard to critique Harris for repeatedly describing certain denominations and beliefs with phrases like, quote, theologically compromised, quote, before proceeding without any further qualification. One can, however, fairly point the finger when Harris does not qualify or define the very concrete concepts and persons that are clearly central to his thesis. Phrases like the new left, Marcuse or Mills, Marxist, Marx or Eagleton, communist, Stalin or Trotsky, liberal, Thomas Jefferson or George W. Bush, and progressive, Teddy Roosevelt or Barack Obama, are used here not only without definition, but interchangeably as if they weren't highly definite terms. This amorphous grammar distracts from the real conceptual games of the text. It is difficult, for example, to overlook Harris's specific fixation with 19th century abolitionists, given that this thesis was written in 2020 during the proliferation of Black Lives Matter protests across the country. Racial issues are the predominant concern in the text, and while neo-Marxist ideology may be a prominent feature of movements like Black Lives Matter, Harris's actual analysis runs at cross-purposes with any critique of that ideology. His own intellectual inheritance clarifies some of what is going on here. The department chair who oversaw this thesis received his own M.A. from Bob Jones University during a time when that institution was earning a notorious reputation for lagging behind the rest of the country for decades in matters of racial segregation. Harris himself has not shied away on his podcast from defending the Confederate cause or suggesting cessation and violence as legitimate political tools for reforming our constitutional republic. Taken in context, much of this seems like an extended polemic not about the New Left or Marxism at all, but about Southern revisionism regarding religious abolitionism and its progeny. 
If all of the talk about Marxism and the New Left feels like sleight of hand, one must remember that even Liberty University probably feels a little too old to be publishing a thesis about the pernicious influence of abolitionists. I would really rather not turn to the extra-textual when reviewing an academic text, but such are the options available when making sense of equivocations. The specific kinds of deficits within the text raise real questions about Harris's credibility, and one can't pretend that questions of authorial intent are irrelevant. The book comes to us at a time when others, like Vaudi Bachman's popular Fault Lines and Scott David Allen's Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, have appealed to a certain fringe set of old-hat fundamentalists and prospective disciples of a new evangelical brand. These books are far from mainstream success, but are popular enough as outliers in the internet age to attract a respectably sized audience. One can only hope that Harris has misread the market demand for books that rely on the kind of cynicism that seems to underlie so amorphous an intellectual vocabulary. The idea for this book is a generative one, and I suspect many readers will arrive interested and leave with enough trivia for that curiosity to remain intact. If this leads them to the source materials, Social Justice Goes to Church is worth their time. Only the reader's good discretion will determine if Harris concludes it was worth his time.